Please open in your copy of the scriptures to 1 Timothy chapter 6. As you can see, we are winding down on our studies of 1 Timothy, where God instructs us on how to build his church, how to build his church. And here we are at chapter 6. This morning, I want to place emphasis on verses 11 and 12. It reads this way, 1 Timothy 6, verses 11 and 12. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And what I want to do this morning is revisit this text. I realized that not too long ago we looked at at least verse 12. And this morning what I want to do is revisit the text and set some groundwork for a detailed look at these two verses next week. But I think it's important that we lay some groundwork today. I was noting to the folks downstairs in Sunday morning class that the challenge that we face today in modern America, but throughout, the challenge that we face as Christians in this society is not that the world is becoming less religious. Does that surprise you? The world is not becoming less religious. In fact, the number of religious people statistically is rising, and it's actually rising substantially. The nuns, not the N-U-N-S, but the N-O-N-E-S, nuns, people who say they have no religion, no faith whatsoever, is at 16% worldwide and it's expected to drop to 13% in the next few decades. So the numbers of the nuns is actually going down. And Christianity itself, now when I say Christianity, unfortunately there's a broad spectrum of Christianity and not everybody who says I'm a Christian is truly a Christian, but in the various array of Christian beliefs the number of Christians is actually increasing and increasing substantially. Today, 31% of the world population professes one form of Christianity or another. One, one third of the world professes a form of Christianity. And that is expected to increase substantially in the next two decades. Are you encouraged? You should be. The challenge that we face in a secular society is that presently, today, there are many people who do not see the Bible as actually a viable book to instruct us and to guide us. We simply, too many people, do not see the Bible as a source of truth that will guide your life. Others say it's mostly a source of truth. And they say, well, there's good things there that we should not overlook, but much of it can be overlooked. And then, of course, there are those who look and see, say, well, I don't like that part, and so I want to take it out. Can we just cut that out? You know who's famous for doing that? Thomas Jefferson. In fact, Thomas Jefferson, you could go to the Smithsonian and see his Bible, and the scissors he used to cut out every portion he did not like. It's referred to as the Jefferson Bible. And there are his pair of scissors, which he used to cut out anything that he did not really believe in. And he was a deist, and he did not believe that God still intervenes in the world today. He did not believe in miracles, so you cut those out. He did not believe that God still interacts with his creation. So he cut those out. And so it's a very holy Bible, if you will. <laughs> but we do that too today, my friends. We, we don't necessarily cut it out, but we ignore it or we omit it. We don't believe it. We say, oh, I don't like that part. The Bible speaks for itself, and so let the Bible speak. And what the Bible says, the Bible means. Unfortunately for many people in our culture, we do not see the Bible as inerrant or infallible or as the inspired word of God. 
And so it's hard to believe in the Bible as a viable means by which we can learn how to navigate this life. And let me encourage you to take the Bible as it is, read it, and study it. Many people today, and I'm quoting to you from a British uh, uh, doctor by the name of Rebecca McLaughlin, um, rather young woman, but rather interesting and very bright woman. She notes that many people see the Bible as a racist, white-centered, slavery-condoning, sexist, anti-intellectual, homophobic book that does not allow for love to be love. And so they set it aside. Now, granted, those numbers statistically are decreasing, but we're still facing it, no question about it. Many people we may introduce our faith to will say, hold it, hold it, I don't read that homophobic, racist, slavery-condoning book. You're still there, that's so backwards. Not only am I describing here what so many people think about Christianity, but also I'm pointing out the course of Western civilization. This has been the case for a while now. I am explaining here why so many people avoid Jesus Christ until they are absolutely in need of him. I don't want to talk about Jesus until I really need him. Don't call me, I'll call you. Why so many churches sit empty of any true or loyal or sacrificial people who are self-giving, where faith is so lacking. They either have not read the Bible or they have read it very casually Certainly, they have not studied the Bible. Let me recommend to you that if you were to study the Bible, not only would you discover new truths about this world we live in, but also about yourself. And you will discover as well that the Bible is far from being racist or homophobic or slavery condoning or anti-intellectual, or white-centered. Jesus was not a white man. <laughs> I know we picture him that way, by and large. But he was a Middle Eastern man. Brown skin, most likely. I just happen to like that. <laughs> The Bible has so much to say for you to you, no matter what stage in life you're in, whether you're young or old. The Bible will speak truth to you, sometimes truth that cuts and is very, very uncomfortable. But let me remind you that the Bible doesn't only cut, it heals. The Bible will heal the very wound it creates. But it first has to point out to you your need before it can heal you of your needs. Read it, study it, and don't do it casually. Otherwise, you'll end up misunderstanding it. Many people cannot contend for the truth of the scriptures because they're not studying it. You see, you, you cannot fight for something you don't know, for something you don't understand. So if you are going to fight the good fight, you need to be reading the word of God. How often? I would say daily. Certainly this is a good part of it too, but this should not be the first time this week that you read the Bible. Read it for your consumption, for your good. Don't read it mechanically. Don't read it out of guilt. Read it because it nourishes your soul. It'll change your day It'll change the way you react. It'll change what you believe. It will transform your mind. It will transform your life. This is the living word of God. It will change you. Are you ready for a change? Read the word of God. Read the word of God. Take to heart what so many people are lacking. The pages, the 66 books, which we call the Holy Scriptures. 
Which brings me back then to the question that's posed here in a statement, but the question I think so many people unwittingly are asking. Is the good fight worth fighting? Is the good fight worth fighting? Well, let's begin to take a, by taking a look at various things we do fight for. And as I said before, I know I've said this not too long ago, but I do think it bears repetition. Here are what I have are nine items which people fight for. Um, did a little research, try to understand what most people are like and uh, how we live our lives. And I have here then for you nine items which we do find worth fighting for. And the first one is this. We fight for survival, don't we? We fight to survive. The big question here is, is the good fight for the Christian faith worth fighting? We often fight other fights instead. And here's one of the biggest fights we fight, and that's the fight for survival. I think it's the most common fight. We naturally engage in it. Nobody has to induce us, lure us to fight this fight. Poverty-stricken communities and hospitals are filled with people who are fighting to survive. And we approach survival with laser focus, don't we? Sure we do. We have this innate understanding that we are created to live and therefore we want to keep on living and so we fight, fight, fight to survive. Here's a second fight we're often engaged in. The fight for health. The fight for health. Not only do we fight to keep on living, but we fight in order to live well. We want quality of life and we want quantity of life, don't we? And so very routinely, we go and see the dentist. We want health. We visit our primary care physician. Why? We fight for health. Uh, we have our regular checkups, or at least we should. Why? Because we want health. We fight to be healthy. And we carefully take our medications, and we spend an extraordinary amount of money on healthcare products and, of course, insurance. Because we fight for health. We also fight for number three, wealth. Wealth for riches. And material items for wealth and materialism. Uh, it's a very common fight here in the United States of America, I think because, well, it's much easier to actually get health or gain, rather, wealth, to gain wealth here in America. In other parts of the world, it's a little harder, maybe much harder. But here in America, wealth is actually accessible. And it's probably the most alluring fight of the common man, wealth. Money. It's not only a fight for more, but in our culture, it's a fight for plenty. We fight for wealth. We fight for abundance. We want it in lavished amounts, don't we? We fight in order to obliterate poverty. We have a poverty-obliterating prosperity in mind. We like wealth. Because, you see, wealth will sort of guarantee us in the future. It'll guarantee us success as well as comfort. But it, we, don't, we don't just think about the future when we think about wealth. We, we think about today, too, because we are not always thinking about tomorrow. We also think about today, and we want our wealth to make our life today comfortable. We want to enjoy it. And for many, for many, the victory in gaining wealth has become their greatest defeat. Their victory in gaining wealth has become their greatest defeat. That's what we saw last week, isn't it? When we talked about the danger of the love of money 
and how the love of money will tear you apart? The same thing here. Charles Spurgeon, the, the prince of preacher, preachers back in the 1800s, said this, where I, I'm sorry, where I have known one man to fail through poverty, I have known 50 men to fail through riches. How true that is. I think you could probably say the same thing. Think of all those people who have abandoned Christ because their pockets are full, because their bank accounts are ample. And they have nothing to do with Jesus. And then think of all those people who are in a position you would never want to be in because they're poor. And yet they lean on Christ. Amen. They trust in Christ. Let me ask you again, who's better off? Eternally. Amen. Praise the Lord for their poverty. It has kept them close to Christ. But none of us want that poverty. I get it. Well, then let your riches take you to Christ. Don't run from Christ because you have money in your pocket. God's blessings can become our greatest trials. Isn't that amazing? Materialism, of course, is the result of wealth. It's a vigorous quest for more stuff. Uh, wealth allows us to attain this stuff, to fill our pockets, to line our walls, to... Uh, fill our rooms and our attics and our basements, and, and, and then when there's an overflow, what do we do? We, we rent garages to fill more stuff. We fill our lives with things. Materialism prizes personal comfort and possessions over all else. What a fight that is. And we fight that fight very hard and very skillfully, too. But here's the problem with the fight of wealth. When you do eventually get it, and listen, I'm going to guess that all of us have gotten it, now have won that, that wealth war, that wealth fight, some exceedingly more than others, but none of us here are famished or impoverished. We have won the wealth war. However, notice that for all of us who are victors, who have won the fight for wealth and materialism, we have learned that it does not satisfy us. We're like, huh, yeah, I do have that. I do own it. That's nice. But there's still something empty here. There's still an echo, a hollow in my heart. Because the wealth, the stuff, did not satisfy. Oh, it did for a little while. But it was very short. In fact, we're kind of surprised at how short the satisfaction was. Here's another big fight we fight for these days. Today, maybe more so uh, than ever before in American history. And that's the fight for social equity. That's number four of the nine. Social equity. Uh, since 2020, I think it has, been, um, it has been, this has been a very popular fight. And honestly, I think it's a worthwhile fight, but we have to fight it properly. We would all agree that fairness, equity to all people is a good and just thing. We would all agree that fairness is good. In fact, that idea comes from the Bible, Malachi chapter 6, verse 8. And what does the Lord require of you? That's a great question, right? God, what do you require of me? Well, I'm glad you asked, says Malachi. Here it is. To act justly, to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. You see, it's a worthwhile fight. It's a fight we need to fight. But notice something. that when we look at the scriptures and we study the scriptures and the quest for equity, notice that it cannot be fought simply with placards and protests. It should never be fought with riots. It cannot be fought through Marxism. And notice something else. It is a fight that will never be won. For Christ himself said, the poor, you will always have them with you. We are not, on this side of heaven, ever going to overcome poverty. 
doesn't mean we shouldn't try. It means we will never succeed. But if we could pull one person out of poverty, great. If we could get, make just laws that will help people, wonderful. We need to do that. But understand that the plight for equity is never going to be fully won. So how do you fight it? Well, you fight it in the crucible of your own personal practices. Fairness is not about what you think of others, my friends. Fairness is about how you actually treat and what you do to others. I'm not interested in what you think. How is that thinking playing out in your acting and how you live out? Be just, be fair, be equitable, not in a CRT way, but in a biblical way. God is just, and we are to imitate God. To invoke injustice or to invoke inequity in the name of justice and equity is simply insincere and nothing more than vengeful. We cannot say, well, now it's my turn to be inequitable to you because of all the times you were inequitable to me. Fair's fair. I take a turn. Now you suffer. I'm the oppressor and you're the oppressee. No, that's not biblical. That's vengeance. And the Lord made it very clear that vengeance belongs to him, not to you, not to me. But it's a fight we should fight in biblical ways for fairness to all people. Here's another fight. It's a fight for pleasure, where we could call hedonism. The fight for pleasure. Um, you'll recall maybe a year, year and a half ago, the Prime Minister of Finland vowed that she would continue to do just as she was doing. And what she was doing was hitting the clubs on a regular basis. And she was actually inviting uh, um, people to the Prime Minister's residence and palace. And she was having all kinds of decadent parties there. You name it, it was happening there, and she was a part of it. And she was the prime minister of the nation. And she turned to the reporter, and it was reported that she said she hopes that the nation will accept her just as she is, because after all, she was young. Hedonism always conveys the ugly side of a person. It's a side we don't want people to take pictures of. It's the self-indulgent side. The reckless, immature, disrespectful, careless quest for self-gratification with all abandonment. That's hedonism. Listen. Contrary to what many people think about Jesus Christ, about God, is that God wants you to enjoy pleasure. He wants you to even have fun. That's not his primary goal for you, to go and have fun, but he wants you to enjoy the life that he's given you. Pleasure is good, and pleasure is even essential. And that's why God placed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. It was a place of pleasure where everything was good until Eve decided to become a hedonist, until she decided to become decadent, reckless, immature, disrespectful, careless, selfish. And world history was changed when her husband followed suit. Christians need to foster a concept of Christian hedonism. Now, I know you've heard that expression before because I've said this before, but have you considered it since? Christian hedonism. Not just hedonism, but a Christian form of pleasure. A, a, a pleasure that stands against the excesses and sins of the world. A pleasure that allows for God's word to produce that pleasure in you in God's ways, in good ways, in ways that will not only please God, but will actually be very pleasurable to you. In ways that are designed by God 
for your life. Uh, John Piper, pastor, writer, retired now, he writes on Christian hedonism. I think he coined the phrase. He says that Christian hedonism is a vision of life based on the truth that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Christian hedonism, pleasure in our lives, is based on the truth that God will be most glorified in your life when you are most satisfied in him. That you would receive pleasure in God's ways and being close in communion to Christ and being satisfied. God is most glorified when you're there. And my friends, your soul will be most content when your life glorifies him. Christian hedonism. This is the idea that we can find boatloads of pleasure in this life without crossing over into what is wrong or sinful or forbidden. You can, and you ought to, and I beg you to pursue it. Find your pleasure in God and the things of God. Oh, I know the world gives a lot of pleasure, but with that pleasure will come a great amount of pain and emptiness and addiction and brokenness. It will. You will not be the exception. Contrary to the impression of many people, I'm always surprised how the pilgrims were so much involved in this concept of pleasure. You know, when we think of the pilgrims, we think of those black and white dress, right? The big buckles on their shoes and on their hats, and they did nothing except to talk about Jesus. You know, the pilgrims were actually quite the opposite. They wore very colorful clothes, and they loved to laugh. They loved to enjoy themselves. They loved to have fun. But they sought to do it within the parameters of God's word, what was allowed by God. And they found their greatest pleasure was when they stayed within that circumference of God's word. Then they were truly hedonists for God. And they were very satisfied. Again, this is the problem that Adam and Eve faced in the Garden of Eden. Uh, they, they thought that they could find their pleasure outside of God's word. And look at how they destroy this world. Why do we shake our heads every time we listen to the news and we say, it can't be, it can't be. Well, blame Eve and then Adam. Why? Because they thought they could find their pleasure outside of God's word. And what a price we all pay for it. My friends, the world does crave pleasure and it promises pleasure. And I won't lie to you, it does give pleasure. But it is a painful pleasure that will injure you. God's pleasure will soothe you and satisfy you. And it will put a smile on your face and in your soul. Fight that fight for Christian hedonism. Here's another fight we fight for, number six. That's the fight for work. Some people live to work. Is that you? They don't work to live. They simply love to work. And they have a great work ethic. They fight and fight and fight to work. We're troubled by people who don't fight to work, right? Who just sit there and, well, what are you going to do for me? We don't like that. But the other end would be those people who just live to work. And what a fight they fight. They seek fulfillment according to what they can produce at work. They hope to find their fulfillment in their work. So they are doers. They're hunters, makers, builders who frown on anyone who doesn't work as hard as they do. But, but they do forget this. They, they, they forget that work is not an end in of itself. But rather, work from God is a means by which we are to reflect God 
and God works. Why should we work? Because in our work, we are reflecting God. Not only that, but we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, that in our work, we should glorify God. Yes, fight to work. But in your fight, don't work just to be wealthy, just to be more comfortable. Fight to work, not simply because work makes you feel good, because that's where your identity is. Have you noticed that most men, when they're asked, so, so tell me a little bit about yourself. What do most men do? They say, well, I may, right? They identify themselves by their work. Don't let that be you. Don't let that be you. There's much more to you, Christian men, than what you do for a living. Women tend to be different. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. So tell me a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm a worker for the glory of God. I fight to work for the glory of God. It's a worthwhile fight if you're fighting it properly. Here's number seven. A fight for power. It's what Augustine in his book, City of God, referred to in the Latin as the libido dominandi, or the lust to dominate. A lust to dominate, power. Whereas the philosopher Nietzsche would argue that the quest for power is what drives life. The more quest for power you have, the, the more alive you're going to be. The scriptures tell us that the quest for power will destroy life. Intertwined with this quest is often then a fight not only for power, but for fame that often comes with power. And fortune, and of course, the idea of conquest. People fight for power. Men, not to pick on you so much, but we're more prone to that than the women. But women, don't pat yourself so quickly. You too fight for power, maybe in a different way, at a different level, a different kind of power. Today, it is a very common power for both genders. Oh, quest for more power over the person next to us. It's purely self-serving. Um, it wants to control. It, it wants to control whatever is coming my way. Uh, the quest for power wants to control how others behave. It, it wants to control what others will receive or not receive, what others will believe or not believe. Power, quest, libido dominandi. In fact, those who are fighting this fight for power, the idea of submission makes them shudder. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm not about to do that. And yet, what does the word of God call on us to do? It calls on us to submit. Submit first to him and his word. Wives, submit to your husbands. Submit to the law. Submit to authority. None of us reign on our own. Any authority we have, please understand, is delegated authority from God. And if you have authority, use it well. Use it properly. Do not dominate and subjugate. Understanding that whatever authority you have, you are answerable to God for what we have today, instead of having a sense of, I want to be good to you, or I want to commune well with God, we have this self-inverted desire for ourselves, and we want power for ourselves. And the culture actually prizes that. You will actually be crowned for it. Wow, look at her. Wow, look at him. That's somebody we want to be like. I often wonder what drives a person to want to be president of the United States of America. It's certainly not the pay. And I can't speak for who uh, these people are and what's in their hearts, but I often wonder, is it patriotism? Is it a love for the Constitution? Is it a love for your fellow man? Or is it just a desire 
for power. And it is a powerful position. Something we ought to pray for in these individuals we are looking to vote to or for. The fight for power is diametrically opposed to the biblical standard of serving others and love for others. And yet, though it is diametrically opposed to God's standard, and yet for so many people, there is this silent, quiet fight that hides in the hearts of people waiting for an opportunity in order to become the powerful one. It's, it's frightening. It's something we don't really like to fess up to, even to ourselves. But often it's there. A fight for power. Here's number eight. And that is the fight for knowledge or discovery in science. Education is indeed a great thing. I wish I had more education myself. The constant learning is a good thing. Uh, no matter what stage in life you're in, we, you should be learning. We, we should be learning because it's a wonderful thing because it, it, it shows to us more and more of the creation of God. The more we learn, the more we understand the creation, the beauty, the majesty of what God has produced. Whether you're talking about the sciences or literature, whatever it may be, we see the beautiful hand of God in his creation the more we learn. You'll know God better as you study harder, even the world around you. Knowledge is good. Science is good. Discovery is good. But the fight for knowledge is good only to the extent that it reveals more of God to you. It's not that all you can study is theology. It's that all that you study is theological. You see the difference? God's fingerprints are in every page of every book about education and discovery and science. Everything is theological. Knowledge for the sake of knowledge is only going to produce a bigger head in you. And you will become conceited. Or you'll just become very trivial. You'll be ahead of knowledge and you'll just like to talk about stuff for no good reason. And some people will enjoy your conversation. Others will not. The ultimate value of knowledge is that you would know your creator and that you would enjoy him forever. Grow in a fight for knowledge so that you will know your creator and enjoy him forever. Your studies, whether it's in sciences or philosophy or art or the history, should open your eyes to the magnitude of God who calls you to himself and gives you a longing for eternity in his presence. Your knowledge of uh, whatever education you may be undergoing should put you in a place where you say, one day I am going to stand in the presence of the God who created all this truth. And boy, am I looking forward to it. Keep fighting that fight. Different people have different capacities. But learn at your pace. Keep fighting that fight. 2 Peter 1.5 says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge. Knowledge. More knowledge. Within the fight for knowledge... Of course, then, is the fight for discovery. And some people have a thirst for discovery. They are in a constant quest to discover more and, and see more. They have a Lewis and Clark sort of heart. Uh, my little three-year-old granddaughter, of course, she's at that age where everything is new. Everything is new to her. She's constantly learning. It's wonderful to see children just absorbing and their knowledge growing. And it's amazing to see how much they learn in such little time. And whereas a year ago she could barely walk, today she's having conversations, telling jokes, and her personality comes out how much she has grown. She can recite Bible verses. She could count her numbers. She can tell you about relationships within the family. She knows how to mourn. knowledge a longing to remove the mystery that hides behind 
the closed book. Knowledge. Keep in mind, my friends, that science is subject to truth. Truth is not subject to science. Science seeks to discover truth. The Bible gives you those truths. Science seeks to discover and interpret truth. The Bible gives you those truths. Now, the Bible is not intended to be a science book, but the Bible and science do not reject each other. They do not oppose each other. Give it time. If science says one thing today, give it time and wait and see how the Bible will be proven accurate yet again. It was the scientist George Washington Carver who said, the scientist George Washington Carver who said, I love to think of nature as an unlimited broadcasting station through which God speaks to us every hour if we will only tune in. Here's another fight. It's the last fight that we are so commonly engaged in. It's number nine, and that's the fight of patriotism. That's a big fight today, isn't it? Patriotism, the ever popular fight for our nation. We sometimes think that the purpose of the church is to make America great again. We confuse the things of God. At best, let me remind you, it's the other way around. America exists that the church may freely do God's bidding around the world. What's the purpose of our nation? That the word of God would prevail and give opportunity for the world to hear of the grace of Jesus Christ. And boy, have we done a good job at that over the last 250 years. But there's more work to do. Our national freedom is just one way in which God's grace is disseminated worldwide. And now the principles of Christianity is in the air that we breathe worldwide. Thank you, Lord, for the United States of America. We're not alone, but we have played such an essential, integral part in the conveying of God's gospel to the world over our history. And as Christians, we are to be, yes, loyal citizens. We are to vote according to biblical principles. Yes, we are to fight this fight for patriotism. We are to respect the laws of the land. We are, mind you, to pray for our leaders, even if you didn't vote for him, even if you don't like her. Pray for your leaders. But we are not. We are not called to make the church the state religion. Look at the fiasco of the Russian Orthodox State Church. If you know anything about the Orthodox Church in Russia, you know that it has no Christian influence anymore. Why? Because it's owned by the state. The state controls the church. The church does not control the state. Consider past history how um, the, the, the Anglican Church, because it was the state church of England, fought back and forth with the Vatican. And how today, the Anglican Church has very little good to say in terms of the gospel of Christ and impact of souls for Christ. Well, there's still those who are very much in tune to the gospel of Christ, but percentage-wise, they are few and far between. Why? Because it became the state church. Yes, a nation is blessed when it upholds God's moral standards. Nineveh knew that certainly very well, didn't it? However, it is not our job to make America a Christian nation. It is our job to build the church of Jesus Christ, not build America. Our job is to proclaim the gospel and let the gospel, as people come to Christ, change America. It is dangerous to think that we can use government to make Christians or to expect the government 
made up of unbelievers by and large, to readily embrace the word of God. Christians are to be Christ-like. In a Christianized nation or in a secular nation, we can't expect unbelievers to act like Christians. Why are we surprised by the laws of the land and how unbiblical they have become? Well, they're not believers. And that's why you need to take the gospel to them. Never think that the United States of America is the new Israel, that the USA is God's chosen people. We're not. The church is God's chosen people. Israel is God's chosen people. The church is God's spiritual chosen people. And we should be acting like Christians. We should be fighting the fight for Christ. You can't expect the nation to do that. And yes, indeed, there is a lack of cohesion and solidarity that threatens the American states today, primarily because of a clash of worldviews, secular views, and Christian worldviews coming to battle together and between the historical Christian view and the progressively spreading secular view. And the question is, who's going to win out? I don't know. I don't know. But I know we need to fight that fight not to win America, but to win souls for Christ. Meanwhile, praise the Lord that he's placed you in America where you can live freely. You can live out your beliefs in Jesus Christ. And the Christian has to learn how to navigate these choppy waters and still live by God's standards. Uphold the church of Christ in the meantime and seek to be good citizens by teaching and living out the word of God. Having said all that, look once again at 1 Timothy 6. All the nine fights that I mentioned to you, all of them are worth fighting except for one. I think you know which one. They're all worth fighting except for one. But when it becomes, any of those other eight become the priority in your life, it becomes a misappropriated, a misplaced goal, a wrongly ranked struggle. There is a greater fight to fight. There is a better fight to fight. All those fights at times may be essential, but none of them can be better or greater or fought with more skill than this fight, the good fight for your faith. That is the fight you must fight. That is the fight you are called to fight. There is one fight which is 100% worthy of the Christian life. This is the fight you must be involved in, and it is the good fight. And it's listed here in these verses, 11 and 12. Is Christianity worth fighting for? Well, the answer is there in the title that God gives. He says it's the good fight. It's worthy of fighting. It's not just good in contrast to bad or worthless, but rather it's the good fight in that it is the superior or commendable, worthwhile fight. The good fight is a battle for the kingdom of God in you. Not in our American borders, but rather the fight for the kingdom of God in you, Christian. The good fight is a battle in which you fight for the faith that you profess in you. It is about the reign of Christ in your life from day to day so that the borders of your faith will permeate beyond you and into your home and into your church and prayerfully maybe even into our community. But it first begins in you. It's a good fight because it's for an excellent cause. It's the cause of God. It is the fight of everlasting truth. We do not war against flesh and blood. We know that. And we do not fight in the ways that the world fights. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning of verse 3 says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. No, we're not. For the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Fight, fight, fight. The good fight. It's a fight that leads to eternal life. It's a fight 
that satisfies the longing soul. My friends, understand this. Heaven is promised to those who fight the good fight and to none other. Fight an inner battle against a world system that's pushing against God, that's trying to put God aside. Fight that fight. A fight against a world system that makes promises it cannot deliver. It is a fight against temptation that you face daily and obstacles that come your way. It is a fight that remains focused on the main event. And what's the main event? Christ alone. Fight the fight. And so verse 12 reads, Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life in which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. It is the fight that leads to true life. It is a fight that gives you eternal life. My friends, eternal life is the trophy that you will receive for engaging in this battle. The verse here says, take hold of eternal life. When you received Christ, you were enlisted into his army. You were enlisted for his cause, to fight for it, to defend his truth, and even to thrust the church of Christ into victory and bring glory to Christ, your commander. And so we read in closing from Revelation 3, verse 11, it says, I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. No one will seize your reward. This is the good fight of the faith. And to fight well, you have to stay focused on the promise of eternal life as your prize. Fight against the desires of the flesh. And 1 John chapter 2 says, that these desires are the eyes and pride of life, which are not from the Father, but of the world. Fight the good fight. Fight, fight, fight. We'll take a look at the specifics of that fight next Lord's Day. Let me pray. Our Lord and our Savior, how grateful we are that you not only call us to battle, but you equip us for every good thing that we need to do in this fight. And for that, we praise your name, our commander, our general, our God. Amen.